Well, good morning. If, that, if you weren't awake, Ali's in the sanctuary. I'm sure you are now. And uh, I, hope, I hope that's good. I hope that there's something here for you to hear while you're awake. Last week, we began this uh, short series on being the beloved community, on being the church. And we started off by listening to Jesus in John 17 as he prayed for his followers and as he prays for us. We took from his prayer a couple of key ideas about what Jesus expected the church to be, what Jesus anticipated for his followers who would come after him. We noticed that Jesus prayed fervently for a community that would soon know his absence, that they might be present to one another. Jesus prayed that despite his no longer being among them, the disciples would be kept in his name and in effect that they would be Christ to each other. We remembered that our presence to each other, it matters. It still matters as we exist in a world where Christ is not physically present among us. Then we also heard Jesus repeatedly ask that these followers of his, that they might be one, even as he and the Father are one. And we were challenged to allow ourselves to be known and to take the time to genuinely get to know others in the community, to allow ourselves the opportunity to experience the fulfillment of that prayer of Jesus and to be one with each other, even as God is one. If you didn't get a chance to listen to last week's message, I'd encourage you to take some time this week to find the time and to listen to it. Download the podcast, check it out on SoundCloud, listen as you drive or take the subway or cook dinner. It really was and is a message in the context of so much reconsideration and renegotiation that's happening in our lives and in the world about why are we here and what are the things that we value and why church? And I think those are still important questions this week, too. So if you haven't listened to that, please do find time, go back, do that. Because it's also challenging us to think intentionally about our relationship with the community of the church, what God may be calling us to, and how we can participate in the full life of Jesus, which he still desires and prays for us to know. This week, we take the next step of looking at this beloved community, the church. And the scripture reading is taken from some of the very first moments where the church is actually the church. The scripture reading was just on the day, just after the event of Pentecost. Jesus has already ascended to the Father, and his disciples have stayed in Jerusalem and prayed just as he told them to do. And then the Holy Spirit descends from heaven and doesn't just anoint these people. This had been common in the past, but it actually fills them. And following the miraculous signs of tongues of fire and people speaking in languages that they had never actually learned, Peter, he preaches the gospel for the first time. He shares with all who will hear that Jesus' life and death was God's plan for the world. And though evil tried to have its way, that God raised Jesus from the dead, freeing him from death's agony, and that Jesus is both Lord and Messiah. And people believed. The church had just grown, I would say, far more than exponentially. We hear a lot about exponential growth these days with this virus, but they've gone from like 12 and some others 
to 3,000 more added in a single day. This is beyond exponential. This is explosive. Jesus' prayer is now a prayer for this whole community, not just those 12, that these many would be one, that his joy would be made complete in all of them together, that because of their unity, the world would in fact know that the Father had sent the Son. And honestly, that's a tall order because this group had mostly just been Jewish men from in and around Galilee, and now it included Parthians and Medes, Alamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Cretans and Arabs. It gives us this tremendously long list of the people who were there that day, and they're all so different different culturally, different in their expressions of their faith, different geographies, different values. And suddenly, this, this is the church, and these people are expected to be one, even as Jesus and the Father are one. Huh. Good luck with that, we might think. What would it look like for such a disparate and diverse group to be one? How might these become the beloved community of Christ in the world? Well, as much as we might feel like giving up in days like our days when we hear of a group like that, they certainly make a really solid go of it. It says that they worship together, they share fellowship with each other, they take care of one another, and they enjoy the favor of all the people. And God blesses this community that it should grow daily. And honestly, if you've called this church home for a little while now, you've probably heard me preach on this particular text more than my fair share. So if you have heard me preach on this before, I hope that you'll forgive me for this. But it's a passage that I find to be so foundational in my understanding of the church. I've shared before that I grew up in a Pentecostal church, and I was really raised on this book of Acts. This was their bread and butter, and as I learned about it, especially as I read verses like these, I often scratched my head in sheer confusion about how the church that I knew there and how the church that I would later call home, a Presbyterian church in Windsor, how these things look so little like the community of Jesus' followers in this text. Maybe you felt this way about the church too. But today, I think and I hope my preaching on this text will be a little bit different than how you've heard it before because today I want to focus on those simple actions of worship, fellowship, and care and the impact that they have not only on the church but on the world around us as well. Worship, fellowship, and care. I don't think it's any mistake that these actions in the church flow in this particular order. Devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, these new members of the community strive to understand who God is and who we are. Together, they take on the mind of Christ, having so encountered his spirit that it begins to shape their hearts. This is why we encourage everyone to weekly participation in worship, in community worship, that continuing to hear that same teaching of the apostles passed down to us, we might also continue to encounter it and understand it in community, not only alone. 
and that we do this on Sunday for a particular reason, that that's a first movement in our weeks, a first action that would define all the rest of everything else that might happen. Then, if you've been attending church with us for a little while, I'm sure you've heard how we move from the prayer of confession into good news and passing the peace, and that how right relationship with God also causes us to move toward right relationship with each other. And Jesus' prayer for his friends that we heard last week should have reminded us of that truth too. The more each of us becomes like Jesus, the more we're drawn to one another. I've often reflected that even though the church as we know it is plainly imperfect, and even though Christians, frankly, can be some of the most frustrating kinds of people, that if the church really is the body of Christ in the world, and if we really are the presence of Christ to one another, no matter how small that presence may seem, then we who follow Jesus, we who find him so compelling, we who love him because he first loved us, should find ourselves continually drawn back into that community of people who continue to bear his name, that community of people where his likeness is displayed for us. It's non-negotiable. We can't help ourselves. So we see the same thing happening in this text. Not only are they committed to the teaching of the apostles somehow in isolation from each other, the church is actually drawn together in fellowship. And that might sound like a particularly churchy word to you. It means communion, community, deep relationship, close bonds. They eat together and they pray together. They get to know one another. If Parthians and Judeans, Cretans and Arabs, even visitors from Rome are somehow meant to be one, then they're going to have to spend some time together. And not only superficially, not just talking about the weather. It's getting cold lately. And not just talking about the local sports team. Too bad about that Raptors loss. But talking about the joys and the frustrations of their days. Opening their homes and more than their homes, their lives to one another being honest with each other, and choosing into even the hard conversations that maybe they don't want to have because the value of their relationship with other people in this community is worth more to them than the comfort that might be known by avoiding the conversation altogether. We've talked a lot in our church about how loneliness is endemic in our age and the reality that the pandemic has only made it that much worse for so many. And I think most of us, if I were to ask you to raise your hands, don't worry, I'm not. Maybe you at home can. Maybe that feels safe. But I think most of us would admit that we probably want to know each other better than we do. And most of us probably just don't know how to do that. It's frightening. My advice for trying to make deeper relationships in the church is to lean into that discomfort. As one of our elders here, Ann Chow, once famously coined the phrase, awkward is better than nothing. And with that cold encouragement in your heart, if this church is your church home, consider being the person who opens up first to someone else that you're talking with. Nobody wants to do that. 
Nobody wants to be the one who opens up first, who puts themselves out there, who takes the risk of being rejected. But if you call this place home, then you probably already know somebody else. Maybe somebody you can debrief with after the fact and talk about how hard that was or how awkward it felt. So choose to be that person who moves a conversation beyond the Canadian niceties into something that really is fellowship, really could become a close relationship, really could help the church to be one because you're letting yourself be known. And in doing that yourself, you're actually inviting others to allow themselves to be known as well. So this beloved community thing is getting a little bit tougher, isn't it? Because last week, all I did was I encouraged you to share a message in the live chat to let us know that you're part of this worshiping community, to talk to somebody on the front lawn. Maybe that felt scary, but it was lower stakes than this. Now I'm encouraging you to let those interactions mean something. Let them mean something. Let them become something. And honestly, it's not going to stop there either. Because not only do we better know God and better relate to each other because of the church, but that deep relationship with which God gives to us in the church actually demands that we care for each other. We help those who we genuinely care about. For most of us, that's a given, right? When a dear friend or a beloved member of the family needs help, we help them, even at great cost to our time even at great cost to our finances or our convenience, we will give of that which we have, no matter how meager it may be, to help lessen the burdens of those who we know and those who we love. Naturally, then, this should also be the case in the church as deep relationships are formed. So, too, a community of care reveals itself in the midst of these first believers. They can't help but sell their possessions and their property and give to the ones who have need. Because those ones who have need are not faceless, nameless people. It's not like we're just talking about the poor and the homeless and the needy and the marginalized. They have names and stories and they're valuable to us. We care for them. And so we can't help but move out toward them in love because they're family and they're friends. And this is probably where we struggle the most as Christians, as Christians trying to be the church together. This is the dissonance that I always felt with this passage, maybe that you felt too, because we're tied more to the families we've been born into or the families that we found along the way through common interests, common education, common background than we are to the family of God. And so it's really no wonder that we do not receive the care that we perhaps expect from the church when we read verses like this, because neither are we prepared to give care that looks like this for the sake of others. Our fellowship with one another is often so shallow. And so if it's this shallow, Compassion cannot be the natural fruit of it. And if our, if our fellowship is this shallow and fellowship follows the teaching of the apostles, then we must also wonder if we have prioritized enough the teaching of Christ in our lives. If these things follow in this order, 
Maybe there's a worship and discipleship problem at the heart, and then a fellowship problem. And as we focus on these things together, we'll find that the care, it comes as a natural result as well. We have to ask, has Jesus' love been in us enough that we should desire to love him as he is seen in those names who appear on the Sunday morning live stream chat, in these faces who are gathered among us here this morning? And from that love, would we sacrifice for the sake of each other, choosing to suffer alongside the ones in whom we have nothing else in common other than our shared humanity, and being a part of this community, which is Christ in the world. And honestly, this can and should begin in small ways, because I don't expect anybody to go from disinterest in others in the church to suddenly selling property to care for the marginalized. When we talk about pastoral care in our church, the biggest area of need that we always highlight is something that we call everyday care. This is the kind of care that all of us need all the time. It's the care of somebody who asks you how you're doing, and it's not just the greeting. They mean it, and they want to know. It's the kind of care of knowing that we're loved and we belong. And it's a care that we're all responsible for offering to each other, even as we each require this for ourselves. In many ways, simply having the opportunity to be known, those conversations that actually mean something, is the first expression of care offered by the church and the one that begins to open us up to deeper compassion for one another. During the confessional movement, we sang that song where we said, from the need to be understood, from the need to feel accepted, from the fear of being lonely, deliver me, O God. And I worried as we sang that, do we think that we shouldn't feel the need to be accepted or the need to be understood? Because that's not what this is. The way God delivers us from those needs is that he meets them. And the way God meets those needs is in the community of the church. This is the place where you should be delivered from the need to be understood because you are understood where you're delivered from the need to be accepted because you are accepted, where you're delivered from the fear of being lonely because you know you are never alone. That's what this community of the beloved is about. Christ desired that we should be one. He prayed eagerly for that. And if this was the prayer of our Lord and Messiah and his prayer draws us into communion with each other, as we find our lives being conformed to his life, then we should also grow in care for each other in no lesser way than we would care for those who are our own blood relation. The title for this series, I'm not sure if many of you noticed, The Beloved Community, it comes from a phrase that's best known because it was popularized by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who desired to see in his time a community of people where wealth was shared where poverty, hunger, and homelessness were not tolerated, where racism and prejudice were overcome by the spirit of brotherhood and sisterhood. In short, Dr. King desired to see the church. He desired to see the church as Christ desired the church to be, 
which is not some fairy tale version of heaven, but it's a concrete possibility if people like you and people like me will commit ourselves to the work which is required to see it happen, to live our lives in such ways, devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayers. If we together cared so much that any who had needs among us would see them met, we know this is possible because in the book of Acts, we see an image of people doing just this. And it's hard. It's costly. But we have received the gift of the Holy Spirit and we know that this promise is for us and for our children and for all who are far away, for everyone whom the Lord our God calls. There's one more big idea which I'm hoping to share with you this morning. And it comes from the final verse in this chapter of Acts, where it reveals to us what I think is maybe the most powerful thing about the church being the church, about the beloved community when it behaves as its Lord desires it to for the sake of the world. It says that they had the goodwill of all the people. Isn't that crazy to you? With the sort of PR fiasco the church knows today, these people had the goodwill of all the people. Despite the stonings that they would experience, despite the crucifixions the church would know, despite the persecution of all sorts, they write of themselves that they had the goodwill of all the people. I think it's marvelous It's wonderful, and it's a little bit surprising because maybe we expected a community like this so rejected, it seems, from the history books to be a community that is insulated from outsiders, that is maybe avoidant of them, that's maybe despised by them, but they write that they had the goodwill of all the people. How does that happen? The goodwill of all the people came from knowing that the church cared for them too. The care which the church exhibits, it doesn't stop at that sort of line that we try and draw around the community, but it extends outward because it can see the image of God in the faces of people who do not yet know the Spirit of Christ or the teaching of the apostles. And it desires to bless those people simply because they reflect the face of God who we serve. Nothing else. Perhaps in caring for their sickness, we will find that we care for the very sickness of Christ. In visiting them in prison, we will find that we have visited Christ. And in feeding their empty stomachs, we will have filled the very stomach of Christ. There are a couple of ways that in the coming season, we're inviting you into deeper community. Deeper community in our church and deeper community that serves our neighbors, especially through the Christmas season. I wonder, could you volunteer to host clients of United Way partner organizations as they experience a Messiah concert that most of them could probably not really afford to go see on their own? And it's going to be in our church. Could we partner to love the city in this way together? And will you have some spare time on Christmas Day to share a holy day with internationals who won't have anything to do? but would appreciate that there are people here ready to be family for them in this new city and new country. 
Could we serve the world in this way together? The compassion of the church was once so well known that the 4th century emperor Julian, called by the church Julian the Apostate because he rejected the Christian faith and was actually the last pagan emperor of Rome, he famously wrote, when it came about that the poor were neglected and overlooked by the priests, he means the Roman priests, then I think the impious Galileans, by which he means Christians, observed this fact and devoted themselves to philanthropy. They support not only their poor, but ours as well. And all men see that our people lack aid from us. And in another letter, he says, it is their benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead, and their pretended holiness of their lives that have done most to increase atheism. And what he means by atheism is the rejection of the Roman gods. I think if we're to have an impact on our world today, it is these same actions of love first practiced here, here in our midst, among our community, and then lived out in our lives wherever God brings us that will increase goodwill toward the church and that will ultimately reveal the very kingdom of God as it comes on earth as it is in heaven. It was always the powerful who opposed the growth of the beloved community, the religious officials who had a vested interest in the way things were, the Roman authorities who saw a threat to the social order in this sect that showed such compassion that what was, what was once a given was now becoming unmoored. It is powers and authorities still today who do not desire that we should be one, who seek wedges to divide us, to create divisions between us, to paint one group as enemy and another group as friend, who subvert, in fact, the very prayer of Christ. To be the beloved community of God, to be the church in the world, we must root ourselves in that prayer of Christ and the teaching of the apostles and grow together in unity deepening our relationships here, practicing caring concern for one another in this community in simple and profound ways, and then daring to not stop here, but moving beyond this community, showing compassion to our neighbors, that we might have goodwill with the people of Harvard Village and the people of the University of Toronto and the neighborhoods and cities that we each call home. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. We believe that God's Spirit speaks through God's Word. And so we want to give you time to listen for that voice when my voice is quiet a little bit. So there are some questions for you um, to pray about, to journal about, to think about, to talk about if you're together with others at home. Maybe to talk about after the service as well. To have a conversation that means something. The first question is, where are our relationships just surface level? And how might you participate in deepening them? Secondly, do you find it easier to care for your family than to care for others in the church? And with that, trusting that most of us will say yes, pray that God might increase in our church glad and generous hearts that are more closely bound together. And then finally, what are the opportunities God's Spirit might be offering to us to be seen with goodwill by all people? So we'll give you a couple of minutes to reflect on these questions.